This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. So tonight's talk is uh, about um, race, race relations. And so I went back. We did three podcasts before. Uh, it's been four years ago. You believe that? Uh, three uh, on race relations that I think are really good foundational podcasts. I strongly encourage listeners to go back and listen to those. We had one that was based on Brene Myers' TED Talk about implicit association. Which tests. I was thinking about that TED Talk just earlier today. It's Everybody should watch the TED Talk yep. and possibly listen to the podcast about it. Um, the next one was with uh, Chief of Police of Birmingham, A.C. Roper. Yeah. Great conversation with him uh, about race relations at that time with police. You know, it, it, we feel like we've come a long way, but here we are four years later, and we're having the same conversation. So, the only people that could have guessed that would have been people who have paid attention to American history up to this point. <laughs> That we would still be having this conversation. I did, though, and I told you this recently, uh, Dr. Westfall, that I I felt very comfortable with his answers at the time. I thought, like, man, th- this is great. This seems very progressive. It It is very pro- Birmingham City, the police of Birmingham City have been very progressive. And if it, it, you should listen to the podcast if you live in Birmingham. Yeah, or if you surround if you, Birmingham. It was a great un. Uh, uncovering of, of what's going on in the police department, and they are on top of it. They're if doing you, a really good job. If you just get your inf- information from Facebook, you're probably not under the impression that's happening, but I promise you, if you hear what Chief Roper at that point, who's no longer yeah. the chief, but at that point had to say about it, um, I felt very yeah. comfortable. He is, he's since retired. He uh, put 10 years in that position and retired. And so, um, But great conversation. And then the third one was with um, Darif Jameson, uh, Professor of African American Studies at UAB. Yeah, that was another great conversation. Uh, we, so it was three nice foundational conversations. Today, uh, tonight, we're going to have three guests on uh, who all are black. Uh, that is very purposeful because we want to have a conversation. So what we learned, we the three of us, these three white guys sitting yep. in one room, was that we needed to have more conversations with people unlike us so we can continue to understand other people's experiences. It doesn't mean that one black person's description uh, represents an entire group. One of the things we've worked on together is to not think about groups. Uh, uh, right. You try to change that implicit association with a group, okay? But So these are three different individuals with three different experiences, but as we've seen, the color of your skin does affect your experience in America. And so we're going to have a conversation with three people and their experiences and, and also just their thoughts on the current state of affairs with relationships between uh, people of different skin colors. Oh, sure, right. It's an important thing to do. Let's go ahead and get that started. Who okay, do we have so on we've first? Got the first person on we have is, is Mr. Alva Tony. Now, uh, I, he goes by Tony. Tony, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Mark. All right. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So... Um, now, Tony, uh, as he's called by his friends, uh, is um, and I do not know each other very well. We spoke for maybe two or three minutes on the phone before this. Uh, he is friends with someone uh, who I do know very well, and he recommended him as a guest. And so after a brief conversation, I, I agreed with his assessment of Tony being a great guest. So, Tony, thanks for joining us. And, Tony, to help people kind of understand a little bit of your background and and, and what where your voice is coming from tell us a little bit about where you were raised where you went to school um and a little bit about about your the early part of your life okay okay um i was raised in a trustful alabama around the horse track area my neighborhood was owned into birmingham around about seventh grade and i went to barry elementary and then i went to huffman high school and then we were Transferred again to Woodlawn, so I graduated from Woodlawn High School at that time. So you and had I went very different I mean, school experiences. Your your early years, K through seven, then were at Hewitt Trustful. Yes, sir. I was, how many African American people were at Hewitt Trustful when you went there? Basically, um, basically maybe a total of a hundred or less. And total of the eight years I was there, most of the time I was the only African American boy in my class, the only black boy in my class. Maybe had another black girl in class. Sometimes the only black kid. So that was K through seven. We're going to come back to that. And then, then you were rezoned into Birmingham, and right. your your school 
classes changed dramatically. Is that right? Right, right. Went from pretty much all white until like 95%, you know, all black. Maybe one white kid in the class, one or two at the time. What a, what an amazing uh, extreme of experience you had in, in your developmental years through, through, through school. What was that like? What was he, just in a nutshell, what was, the, what was it like being the only black kid in the class? And then what was it like with all black children in the class? How, how would you describe those experiences? Um, it was kind of funny because growing up, I really didn't know I was the only black kid in the class. I didn't know I was a black kid in the class until I got to Barrett. You know, other than that, I was just, you know, a normal kid, Boy Scout, stuff like that. You know, when spent the night over my friend's house and had, you know, peers. And so when you were, so when you were the only black kid, but were oblivious to that, you didn't, there was no tension. You seemed to get along with your peers in school. No one seemed to treat you differently. There was nothing noticeable? No, there was nothing noticeable. The only difference was maybe some kids in my neighborhood, you know, they were black as well, but they was like, later on I found out they were more like LD, or slow learning kids, but, you know, that's when I found out that was the difference between me and them. You know, but other than that, I didn't have any problems, you know. Played football, you know, did everything else, com- competed in talent shows, you know, and had a great time. I was an AB student at that time. Yeah. So then what happened with your change? Um, It was a real dynamic Um. I experienced the first racial slur once I got to Barrett, you know. That was the first time I was called N-word, you know, and I was like, wow, it was a shock. Um, and then I also started seeing kind of like a cultural divide between me and other black kids, you know, not knowing that I'm different, that I come from a different culture. I just thought maybe they, I'm the new guy in and I have more friends, you know, but it wasn't like that. It was more divided, like they used to call our neighborhood the Trustville Boys. Mm. You know, when we got like that's what they used to call us. So even so, even within the school, there was there were groups. You know, we've talked before, guys, about how people yeah. tend to f- fall into groups and or form groups. That's human nature to form groups. And so, what he's describing is even within his culture um, at at that time, there were subgroups, um, and he felt more. Now, let me ask you this: when you were in the Hewitt Trustville system. Was that more of? This was a few years back, right? You're you're uh, in your late forties, right? Right, right. I'm so 48. was it more of a country feel at that point? Yeah, it was more of a country feel. And you so know, then the Birmingham were, City Schools was more of an of an urban feel. Exactly, exactly. You know, that's when I first got exposed to the project areas and stuff like that. Um, because other than that, we had one or two, you know, small black communities out in the Trussell rural area. You know, but everybody was busted into the schools, black and white. You know, but when I went to Barrett, you know, we pretty much was busted all the way from Trustful, you know, into Eastlake. Gotcha. So what happened after school? Um, After school and middle school wasn't a big problem. Maybe Huffman and Woodlawn, you know, after school, we'll have fights sometimes just trying to get to the bus, you know, with the with the local kids, you know. Stuff like that. And, and what happened after you got out of school? Like, I mean, oh, after, after, after high school, school yeah. Um, after high school, um, I joined the United States Marine Corps to get away from the gangs and stuff in Birmingham. And I went off to Paris Island, and I received the honorable medical discharge for towing causes of both my knees and my back. And then that's when I came home, and uh, I ended up getting in trouble with the law at that time. Now, you mentioned to me on the phone briefly that at some point you ended up, um, when you went to live on your own, you somehow partly ended up over in Gate City. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How old were you then? Um, maybe nineteen twenty. So right out of high school, before military. Yeah. Well, when I came home from the military, when I came home hurt. Gotcha. Then- yeah, then I end up, you know, hanging around and uh, moving in with a young lady down in the project. Tony, I'm curious to hear. So you mentioned that after your, you know, medical issue in the military, you came back and and then found yourself in trouble with the law. And I'm kind of curious to hear what you make of that trajectory and and sort of how you found yourself in that kind of a spot. 
Um, well, when I was at Paris Island, they gave me a COG, Convenience of Government form, agreeing that me coming back to Birmingham because we had a VA here, that they were going to help me get reestablished. And, you know, it never really happened that way. Um, trying to find, you know, money uh, and a job, you know, and a better way of life. And I was hanging around the guys where I thought they were making money, but it was a, a not, not a legitimate legal way. You know, just bad company, corrupted good manners. It was a, bad, a poor decision on my part. Were you surprised? I mean, you when we think about like uh, when we're kids and we've got these ideas about what we're going to do and then you find yourself in the military, which you said was a decision, you know, that you made sort of proactively to think about like, oh, I'm going to try to do a positive thing. Were you kind of, you know, when all of that kind of hit and you found yourself in, in trouble with the law, were you surprised to find yourself there or how, how did that feel to you? Um, yeah, I was very surprised because that never was my plan. And, you know, mainly I hurt my mother real bad too. You know, she was a single mother, single mother in the church, you know, and so her learning that about me kind of really shook me, you know? Yeah. And t- talk to us a little bit about the difficulties in in rising out of that system, the the inner city school system and, and life. Uh, you've obviously wow. shared some of your experience, but I think the listeners could – could maybe stand to hear a little bit about, you know, how that sometimes is is a difficult hurdle. Um, well, I'm gonna speak from a different perspective. Okay. Um, Barbershop owner um, in Birmingham for 16 years. I've been a professional barber since maybe 20 years old. I say 28 years. I just was recently retired due to COVID. You know, the layoff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. It's been a great experience, you know. I deal with all kind of kids from all kind of areas, all kind of schools, you know, inner city, county, you know, all kind of sports, and it's tough, you know. If they don't have an avenue or big brothers or big sisters or a good church, you know, a strong family, you know, it's kind of tough to find your way out, you know, because you don't have an example. The Bible says the son can only do what he sees the fathers do. But, you know, in the black family, you really don't see that many fathers. And then, you know, you really don't see that many great examples. And if they are there, you know, at least just stay, they don't go very far. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, the young- I do. Tony, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I've had some discussions recently with some people who've said, well, you know, one of the things that needs to be addressed is, uh, for example, family structure within the black community. And it's something you've just touched on, but I get the... I would be curious to hear what your thoughts are, uh, you know, about why why that is an, an issue. Because I've, I've got a feeling, based on things that I've learned in recent years, that the way that white people perceive that issue within the black community, you know, maybe, maybe white people don't see it or understand it the same way that black people do. Can you share with me your thoughts about about that issue and why you think that exists and what needs to be done about that, if anything? Well, my experience has been um, personally, you know, and, and as a listening ear and through counseling in different classes, it's really a miseducation, you know, because we married for love. You know, we don't understand really what comes with marriage at that time, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, it's like, this is my girl, we're going to fight the world, ride or die. You know, it's like a dream. It's like a movie star dream. Then you realize, then you realize hey, it's a mortgage, it's kids, it's bills, it's real life involved, it's more than sex. And then it's a wake up, you know, because you were never prepared. You know, what versus my white counterparts, you know, they go to school, the, the females, they're going to looking for the doctors and the lawyers, the guys going to look for the jobs. Their fathers already briefed them and told them, hey, you get the money first, then you get the girl, you know, you know, live your life. Well, with us, we're pretty much trying to get grown, you know, get out of the house and get established just to say we're a man, you know. Yeah. And I'm not speaking for everybody. Sure, right. From- I'm just curious. Yeah, it's just, it's helpful, I think, sometimes you know, uh, for because if white people sit around and talk about this, they've got one, but you know, perception of it, but but they don't really know much about the way 
you know, uh, that the black community functions, I think sometimes. I think, so it's helpful for me just to hear you talk about sort of your, you know, perspective on that. Yeah, I think, All right. yeah, it's very, very helpful, Different. Tony. Oh, you, you're welcome. You're welcome. It, it's, it, it is a, um, I think my thoughts on it, I'm curious to hear your feedback on this, Tony. The way I've kind of conceptualized it is that it's a system, and I'm a systems kind of person when I think about things, and systems tend to perpetuate what has been before. You know, we've talked before, winning teams seem to find a way to keep winning. Uh, right. You know, and, and it's, it's a system for African Americans, and we're talking, I realize we're generalizing, and I hate that aspect, but there is some generalization to being low socioeconomic and black in Birmingham. This, the system is not set up for you to, as you described, you know, uh, be educated about what it is to have a family and, and to do those, the pursuits that you are now pursuing. It, you had to kind of learn some of that on your own, as you described. Right, and so, right. Yep. So yep. I think a lot of white people think, well, you know, it's just their choice, they being young, low-income black males. It's just their choice. And I... The, the concept that I keep trying to get to them is, no, this system was set up before they were born. Right. And right. it was set up, you know, we can go through all the whole thing of slavery sure. and, and what sure. all happened. We won't go into all that. But, I mean, in my opinion, it was set up by whites. And now we still have a duty. We, I think all of us, but specifically I'm talking to white people now who have, you know, who aren't low socioeconomic class. Yeah. To help change the system so that we can change the cycle is that does that flow or drive with what the way you conceptualize it tony i mean it, it would be nice i mean if it's possible <laughs> you know in a perfect world you know it sounds so easy you know right sounds so easy but you got to get participation man you got to get access you right know? you got to get and you know you got to get an open hand and heart you know yeah well, I think people are my limited pulse on this on the you know, the, the current um, social uh, awareness is that people are are more and more awake and aware to this, and these current events have I think really woken up a lot of white individuals too. So I think now is a great time to work on moving some momentum to making some change. Um, right. I, I just it feels to me. I go a lot on feel. My wife's like, oh, well, give me some details. I'm like, I can't tell you. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when I feel it. It feels right. different this time. Something feels different. I'm hearing different conversations. I'm hearing people who put their head in the sand before now not put their head in the sand. It, it feels different. I think we need to build on that momentum to make yeah. some proactive change. Yeah, it's, it feels very different. I mean, one for one, you can't hide from it. You know, I mean, not this time. We can't hide from it. You know, we yep. can't turn this everywhere, you know, on top of the COVID, you know. Um, so, but this time it does feel very different. You know, I, I pray that we keep the momentum. Um, but at the same time, I, I want us to work together, you know, and yes. I want it to be empowerment, you know. Tony, I want to ask you this. Um, I've, I told people that the first day or two when the video came out of George Floyd, I read all about it. I read the description. It was just, I was exhausted with, you know, everything that's been going on. And so I didn't feel like I had it in me at that day, that day to watch it. And then when I finally did, it, it just completely changed everything I thought about it. And I wanted to know your take on it. Did you sit down and watch it early on? Um, Early on, I couldn't watch it. But, you know, because like I said, I've I've been had run-ins with the law. I mean, I've actually been tased by the police, you know. I mean, it was like, at first I was kind of desensitized to it. And then as I watched and it, it gained momentum and then the, the eight, nine-minute video came out and see the police officers, you know, acting like he's still alive when he's dead. That's it's kind of rough, man. You know, it was kind of rough. You know, it's on every channel. You know, I got 
four young black kids, man. My kids, my boys are 12 and 14. My daughter's 16 and 18. Just those ones just graduated from high school and, and they're asking me what I think, you know, and, you know, they're worried about things, you know, it's, it's a tough situation. What can we do? I mean, literally we got three white dudes sitting in this room <laughs> wanting to do anything we can. And, you know, my initial thoughts that first week were I just felt helpless and I, I could talk about it on the radio as much as possible, but I didn't know if that was doing anything because I was talking into this echo chamber of people that kind of felt the same way I did. Our, our right. audience wants to do something. They, they want to help, but what can we do? How, what, what can we do to actually make a change? I mean, to actually make a change, I mean, you're doing it. You're talking and you're listening and you're willing to listen. Um, and then as far as that, it, it starts with the youth, you know. It starts with youth. It starts with showing yourself friendly. Maybe, you know, the community, coming out to the community with the youth and the elderly. You know, because there's the one that's going to be there when everybody else going off the battle, when everybody else trying to be heroes. It's going to be the kids, the women, and the young people, man. And uh, just show them love. I mean, just show them change, because the only real change comes from inside. And it's, it's not a quick fix. You know, it's, it's not a quick fix. Everybody can't go home. But at the same time, you know, we can't be stuck as a people. We have to move forward. But, you know, we appreciate you, man. I appreciate this platform. I really do. We appreciate Tony, you we being appreciate here. You, Tony. For Tony, sure. uh, I, one of the things I worry about greatly is that we live in a city here in Birmingham that is still in many ways uh, segregated and divided. And I think when you talk about young people and the promise of the future that, you know, sort of is within that group, I worry about how promising is it going to be if we don't break down some of those barriers and have more interaction between communities where people, you know, know one another and understand better what those life experiences are like. Do, do you see things the same way I do, that our city is too divided uh, along racial lines and we don't have enough interaction? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had made a lot of strides, man. We had stuff like city stages and other festivals that, you know, brought people together, man. And over the years, it divided. Like you said, it's almost like Sunday, the most segregated place in America, you know, church. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's like I told my friend, you know, I have, I have plenty, I hate to say white friends, you know, mm-hmm. but I have white friends and, uh, it's like I said, depending on what door you decide to open in the matrix, man, is how you're going to read it. <laughs> so that's the truth of the matter. You know, you can go in the hood and you can go back in time. And, you know, you can go to 280 Mount Brook or whatever, and you can go off into the future or the summit. But it's just, it depends on how you show yourself, man, and where you decide to show up at. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, Tony, let me close with a question. Um, it's, I know it's been a few years since you were in the school system, but you were in a number of different systems. And one of my uh, focuses is uh, always been if we could make an effect at the school age level um, because, because our school systems are typically based on property values and because, you know, people in a low socioeconomic uh, portion of the city struggle to have the same funding for their schools and and so I always tend to focus on education, but I want to right. ask you a difficult question. I don't know if there's an answer, but if, if you had a crystal ball or a magic wand, I guess I should say, um, if you could change, you know, we, you talked about kind of the, the, the culture uh, that an, a, 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 I guess, stereotypical uh, low income black male is in, what would you change if you had a magic wand to help that child develop what you think they should develop? Would it be the school um, system? Would it be, uh, what would it be? What would you, my, I always go in my mind to the school system, but I may be wrong. No, I mean, I would change the design of the school system, you know, get them more musically involved, more involved with the arts, you know, get them creative, get them dreaming again, you know, versus boring them. You know, we watch our kids, our teenagers stay in front of the TV playing Fortnite for four or five hours or four or five days like it's nothing, you know. 
you just got to get them back in that way, you know, give them something that they're interested in, you know? Yeah. Tony, I feel like you just described my house. <laughs> Play, playing Fortnite. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, the struggle's real. It's real, man. Trust me, it's real. Like I said, I got a 14-year-old with trap for two and a half years. It's real. Well, but yeah. truth, the truth of the matter is, and we, we talk about this a lot on the show, uh, to have good music education in schools and to have good art programs, that takes funding. And it's not yeah. always a priority. And so I know Alabama Symphony has done some great stuff over the last couple of years trying to trying to get instruments into inner city schools, but I don't. That's not enough. I mean, we we have to. There has to be something that kind of evens it out a bit, where a school five miles down the road can have this enormous music program, and the, the school down the hill can't afford right. to get any instruments at all. Yeah. I mean, that has to change. Yeah, it, it does. It does. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, in, in some of the inner city situations, they might get the instrument, man. But, you know, the family foundation might not be set up structure where he could practice. You yeah. know, or, you know what I mean? Or yeah, he it's, could focus. It's, it's more complex mm-hmm. than just the school systems, what I'm hearing you say. Right, right. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's the foundation, man. It right. starts at home. So, Tony. It really does. You've been a fantastic guest, and I, I, I really could keep talking for, for another hour, but we have two more guests that I've got to work in. So um, I'm going to have to bring it to a close, but I, I really appreciate you coming on, and I think my goal for my show, my portion of the show, is uh, to have a better cross-section of skin color. Sure. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of low bar, but I'm going to, uh, you know, so hopefully we'll have you back on at some point and, and have more conversation, okay? Hey, I look forward to it. I appreciate the opportunity, man. You, you guys keep up the fight, man. Appreciate you, you too, Tony. Tony. Thanks, Thanks you. Tony. Yeah, we, we appreciate it big time. Let's take a quick break. So, Brother Radio and Will Lock Me, that's Reed Lock Me over there. Dr. Mark Westfall hanging out with us tonight as well. We're having important conversations, uh, to us at least, very important. It seems like to the listeners as well. We're talking to people um, that are not like us and that see things differently than us because that's what we need to do now is just listen and, you know, I agree. And if nothing else, find out what we can do to to help um, from this standpoint. Right. Yeah, where I think we are. Tony's comment that, hey, you're doing something by having a conversation was shouldn't be taken lightly. And yeah. m- we should have more conversations, we being all people of all different ethnicities, colors, races, religions, whatever. We should have more conversations with other people who aren't like us. That's right. Correct. That's the yeah. only way to get out of being in groups is to talk with someone in another group and realized it. Wow, maybe they're not quite so different. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so. Shahid and DJ Supreme, who we just heard the single from "One Time Too Many," which is fantastic. Go get it; it's available everywhere. Uh, they were on the show last week, and I asked them the same thing: like, what what can I do? And, and they said that to continue talking, uh, and continue to talk to your friends as well, people that may not be comfortable talking about it. Talk yeah. to them about it. Yeah, yeah. There's a great book. I want to plug that real quick. Uh, called "Taking On Diversity" uh, by Rupert Nacost, and he talks about neurodiversity anxiety mm. that sometimes people don't want to bring up a topic because it's a little anxiety provoking you're afraid you're going to say something wrong or offend someone and he's he, he works with his students on first thing he does is help them get past the anxiety yeah you're going to say something that that you may later think wow that wasn't quite the smoothest thing to say go ahead and talk right you know yeah you're going to get it wrong okay you, you, you you're not born knowing it all and I think as long as you're not trying to be a jerk and as long as you are open to the idea that hey oh no I'm willing to admit that I made a mistake and I'm willing to apologize yeah. to you about it I think for the most part people are going to appreciate that you're open to conversation hopefully so yeah hopefully yeah. so cool all right so our next guest Brandon can you hear me yes I can how are you hey Brandon I'm good how are you good good so Brandon, uh, so Brandon's connection with me um, is uh, through my son, my youngest son, Adam. Uh, Adam, as some of you know, is a downhill longboarder, and Brandon also did some longboarding as well. Is that right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> not not too much these days, but uh, yes, it was a great time skating with Adam and uh, going to some of the events that you helped us host back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. So Brandon, you're roughly how old? I am 26. Okay, so uh, did you hear Tony's um, segment? I did. Awesome. I listened to the entire segment. Thank you. Great. Okay. So uh, just kind of give us a little bit of your background and, and just walk us through your your walk through life and where things are for you in life. Sure. Uh, short, uh, 
born in Midfield, or well, I am from Midfield, Alabama. Uh, went to Midfield Elementary for elementary school, Rutledge Middle for middle school. Those are the schools in the uh, Midfield school system. Then I went to Indian Springs for high school, so a pretty big change in my education at that point from eighth to twelfth grade. Uh, graduated Indian Springs, moved to Huntsville for college, went to UAH for a few years. Um, diverged from my original career path that I pursued at UAH, and I am now an apprentice electrician uh, working here in Huntsville. But I moved to Huntsville about two years ago, so I spent a good 24 years in Birmingham. Um, like I said, going to school, working, I used to work at JRAG, which is a local screen printer downtown. So for a good five years spent, um, my workday was right downtown in the heart of Birmingham, listened to a lot of Birmingham Mountain Radio while we uh, while we made the magic happen, printing shirts and embroidering shirts and uh, other things like that. But my walk through life has been good. It has been a blessing for me to get to where I am today, given some of the insecurities that I've faced throughout life. Um, but all in all, I'm, I'm very happy with where me and my family are um, and just feeling blessed to be here. So what are some of the anxieties that you've <clears throat> had to work through? Uh, a lot of them, and I guess just to keep it topical, uh, were about race, of course. Uh, I feel like in general, um, a lot of the black experience can be defined by insecurity. Uh, that insecurity takes on a lot of different forms and comes from a lot of different directions. And it's not simply from other races. It can be internal as well. So working through some insecurities where perhaps I did not fit in best um, at my schools, whether uh, both Midfield Elementary and Rutledge, uh, as I came of age, I suppose, uh, working my way through that school system, interacting with other kids from my community, uh, there was some insecurity about how well I fit in among them. Um, some perception issues, I think, uh, whether it be related to my tone of voice or my perceived intelligence level versus some of the other students. Um, there was some insecurity there and it's not that those things mattered and it's not like those things kept me from making friends and building connections and uh, living and cooperating alongside members of my own community. But there was definitely some, uh, some just some general anxiety about how well I fit in and that continued uh, to Indian Springs and, really just sort of followed me throughout my life. Um, but those insecurities can be financial. They can be familial. They could be educational. Um, but those are some of the anxieties that I've, I've had to work through. And I know that that experience mirrors a lot of what we all go through on a daily basis. Um, but there seems to be a particular overtone of insecurity. I think that comes inherently with uh, just the black experience. And, you know, I'm saying that after uh, being born in 1993, living until now, um, from the scope of where I am, but I think that that would ring true for a lot of my family members who are older, a lot of uh, people who are even older than them. And I think that those insecurities will exist for generations to come. Well, you, you've, you're very insightful and, uh, you hit straight on a topic that one of the guests from our previous podcasts, uh, Darif Jamison, talked about. Um, he specializes in African-American studies with, with relationship to psychology and talks about how there was a movement in, in, with, among black psychologists that the, the traditional psychological approach wasn't working for blacks because, because exactly of what you just described, that just being a minority, there's a whole level of experience and awareness that the person has that they have to navigate. And it's really, a, sure. a, it, it, 
it impacts their their development uh, or you know good positive or negative it just has an impact and and he I talks agree. about how how yeah. a lot of psychologists don't get you know, at the time when when the black psychologists this was back in the sixties were were kind of forming their own group were like you're not you're not addressing that you don't understand that there's this basic difference um, psychologically being in I'm just going to be kind of with black skin. Just that difference alone right. changes your experience on this earth, and right. and, I, and I certainly in the U.S. So uh, yeah, I think that's you mentioned topical. That is like hitting it out of the park. That's exactly one of the things that I think a lot of people who are white don't think about. They don't. They haven't really. Yeah. They haven't really experienced it. And, and I'm not saying they don't care. They just hadn't thought about it. They haven't really right. walked through those in those shoes, so to speak, and, and don't realize the difference. Um, right. And those differences can be really hard to perceive unless you are yourself, uh, black or a person of color or any other race or story, but your own. Um, and given that it's nobody's fault that they lack that particular level of perception, but, Conversations like these, general exposure, um, as I heard you say before, are really the cures to that, I think. As you begin to interact with people of different colors, races, stripes, ethnic backgrounds, um, faiths, neighborhoods, you know, just these, um, not entirely arbitrary, but somewhat superficial things that we... um, that, that divide us into groups that we can exist in comfortably. As you begin to explore outside those groups, you'll find a, a remarkable lack of difference <laughs> between all of the groups. Um, but uh, as you said, that that perception, or not that perception, but just the uh, being in black skin leaves a lasting impact on a day-to-day basis. Um, and even if you are comfortable and living an acceptable life and happy with your situation, it's this nagging thing where you second guess your interactions in public. You put extra thought into your presentation. You perhaps overanalyze yourself a little bit, which can lead to fear and anxiety, like I mentioned before. Um, and just causes you to have perhaps an extra level of perception to your surroundings. Um, but by the same token, it's, it's, uh, it can be empowering and it can be empowering as well to figure out what other people's levels of perception are and to find some common ground so that you can both, uh, grow and build and learn together. You know, one in, in, conversations with colleagues of mine in recent years and also uh, through, you know, podcasts, you know, discussions that I've listened to. One of the terms that I have become familiar with that I'd never heard of before was uh, the idea of weathering. Um, And I wonder if that's something that you're familiar with um, and if you could just sort of talk about your perception of that. If you are familiar with it, if not, I'll be happy to explain what it is. But are you Uh familiar with that concept? I'm not familiar with that concept, but just hearing the word, I almost have an idea of what it entails. Does it at all entail just sort of a weathering your particular situation? Yeah, and also specifically the idea that um, when a person is kind of, you know, strapped with this sort of um, anxiety that you mentioned earlier, right? Like the, the ways that it can be difficult for a person of color to navigate through our society that, you know, that over time, that just has a, a weight that is, uh, that sort of weathers a person a little bit because it's difficult sure. to, to navigate that sure. and the way that that all adds up. Does that ring true to you or? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, I can speak to that from personal experience dealing with family members and um, people that I know who have, uh, sort of in some ways, as you're mentioning, have become weathered and that manifests itself on a day-to-day basis in a few ways. Sometimes it can be 
uh, mistrust. Sometimes it can be overanalyzing, as I've said before. Um, and I, I guess even as I, I think about the concept now and try to apply it to my life, uh, it does take a toll over time. As I said before, it can be empowering. But by the same token, it will eventually, it, it, it can lead to a certain amount of, uh, of numbness to your situation where um, despite your best efforts, you've still just got these overtones of race relations in your mind um, that make it a little bit more difficult what would otherwise be really simple interactions as you go about your day. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think I could, I, I can understand that, that subject. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon, uh, this is, this has been great. I, I will say that I've jumped out of airplanes upwards of 500 times. And I think what you and Adam Westfall, oh, wow. what, what, no, no, no. What you and Adam Westfall do is crazy. <laughs> He's talking about the longboarding. The longboarding. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dude, I, <laughs> I, I would much I've, rather I've have heard a, that a lot. I'd much rather have a parachute not open and deal with that situation than have the wobbles. I swear. <laughs> I swear. Speed wobbles. Yeah, uh, speed wobbles or death wobbles is they are also colloquially known. Um, yeah, it, it can be pretty scary until you get it down. But uh, I imagine sort of like jumping out of a plane, which I've never done, it sounds crazy to me. Uh, you get more comfortable as you do it, and at a certain point, you really achieve this this freedom that you can't really match doing anything else. Yeah, no doubt. Um, hey man, really enjoyed this for sure. Brandon, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thank buddy. you. Of course. Thank you all for having me and for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, Absolutely. Yep. Talk to you later. Two discussions so far, Tony and Brandon, and we have one more guest mm -hmm. to join us yet. Tell us about who we're going to be talking. So about. Annie Allen, Annie, can you hear me? I can. All right. So Annie is joining us and, uh, Annie, tell tell the world a little bit about yourself. Okay, so um, I am black, just to get that out of the way. <laughs> Not just a person of color. <laughs> so, um, black female, um, older than the two previous guests. Um, I grew up in Alabama, and actually I was born in Huntsville, which you know, Brandon mentioned that he lives in Huntsville now. Um, and then moved to Birmingham in my college years when I got my first real job. Um, and spent the majority of my adult life, I guess, in, in Birmingham. And, you know, I like to tell people often about the difference between Jeff Huntsville and Birmingham. Um, when I went to Birmingham, I felt that I moved to this third world country per se um what year having grown up in um it was in the 80s okay in the 80s and i guess for me i felt that way because um while i grew up really poor um we didn't really know we were poor as children but um my dad worked for redstone arsenal and so we probably had some level of access that a lot of black families didn't have. Um, and, you know, we started going to uh, predominantly white school before, um, you know, segregation and, and that kind of stuff or integration. And so I, I think we had a little bit of a different experience. And when I first moved to Birmingham and saw really at that time, and I think to a degree, very much still is just a real divide between you know the white community and the black community i just felt like i have moved from this place that was very very diverse to a place that is very segregated um and so it took me a while to adjust and really come to absolutely love um, Birmingham and to see the diversity and, and so forth. So um, I'm an entrepreneur um, after working in, you know, in the corporate environment for um, many, many years. So I've, I've seen a lot of it 
on both sides, you know, how it is to be a black woman in corporate America, how it is to be an entrepreneur, um, and really the difference in being a black woman and being a black man. Talk about that last part for yeah. me. What is the difference, the difference there? What What's important that, yeah, what do you know about that that's yeah. important for people to know? One thing from my perspective, um, white people are just inherently fearful of black men. Um, I think that is evident in many things that we, we see um, in today's society. I mean, number one, uh, statistically, um, from a corporate standpoint, um, from any kind of professional standpoint, you see that black women really have many more opportunities to excel. Um, you will see that black men don't have those opportunities, and I think it's because, you know, the white man, as we would say, is fearful of that. Um, and to, to come full circle to Tony's comment about black men or fathers, black fathers not being in the home, mm. it's because um, black men have been put in a position that they really are in a catch-22. They can't succeed. And so they've taken what was in their mind the easy way out. They've chosen to sell drugs if that was what was required for them to have money for their family or to feel like they had value personally or to their community or power or whatever. Um, or they've been put in a position where, you know, they were caught with a little bit of drugs because maybe that's what they needed at the end of the day to make them feel like a man because they'd been beat down all day long, either on their job or doing whatever it is they were trying to do. And so they were arrested and imprisoned for ridiculous amounts of time um, for crimes that really didn't amount to anything. And so I think when, you know, as a society, the, the whole topic of, okay, let's, you know, do better by people of color or black people and allow them to get ahead in life, it really came down to, okay, let's kill, you know, multiple birds with one stone and let's choose the black woman. First of all, we're not threatened by the black woman. Second of all, black women, I think, probably have, you know, lesser, um, they're less aggressive. People who know me probably wouldn't say that about me, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they probably are. I, I think, you know, white men are less threatened. By, by black women. Um, and so you see that there have been opportunities that have opened up um, and were available for black women, but they're not necessarily there for black men. What do you, what do you think that fear is about? Why do you think that white, white people and white men feel threatened by black men? Where does that come from, do you think? You know, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for that other than, um, you know, some white men, I would say, you know, feel inferior um, because of, you know, you hear comments about how strong they are. Mm -hmm. You know, black men are so strong. Well, some of them are. Some of them are strong because of what they're, parents have had to go through and, you know, their bodies have developed a certain way. And yes, some of them are strong. But that doesn't mean that they're stronger than, you know, all other men. Um, I think that to a degree, black men have been for a very, very long time in a position where they've had to take on a certain demeanor. They've had to be... Um, you know, some people might say they've always had a chip on their shoulder. Well, if that was true, they've had good reason to have a chip on their shoulder. Um, so I think it comes down to some um, 
some people just feel, you know, that they're dealing with their own inferiority, I think, um, to, to a great degree. And at the end of the day, I really think it comes down to, I'm just going to show you who's boss. Yeah. Because quite honestly, you know, white men have always been the boss. There's some interesting studies, I'm sure you've seen them before, about the way also that white people just straight up misperceive black people. They perceive them to be taller and, you know, bigger and stronger than they actually are in in their physical presence. And it really speaks to some interesting and, and troubling misperceptions um, that I think white people just, just straight up have about black people. Um, and it's, right. it's something we have to really work to reverse, you know, centuries of problematic uh, thoughts and attitudes towards black people. Right. I, I fully agree. And I, and I think that it has to, it has to start from the, the top. Um, and I know that this is not a political conversation, but the bottom line is um, the top has to set the tone. And without a doubt, from my perspective, that is just not happening. Yeah. And um, I don't, there's no reason it and, shouldn't be a political discussion, I think, as well. <laughs> and, and I don't just mean the top from a government standpoint. I mean the top from every level of society, whether that is um, government at the local level, whether that is the educational system, whether that is in your home. Every one of those places at the top or that particular entity, that's where the change has to come. And it has to be, it has to start in your mind, and then it has to go to your heart, and it has to be intentional. Intentional. So, you know, to Mark's point earlier that, you know, we don't have these discussions, we don't talk about this enough, well, those conversations have to start in our homes. And for black people, that has always been the case. That conversation has started in our home. We have always been told, you are, you are black. And to, and to Brandon's point, no matter how good you are at whatever it is you do, you have always got to be better. So, because at the end of the day, you're still black. And so if you were being graded, you've already lost points because you walked in and you had black skin. So to get ahead and get the points that you need to win or even to continue to be in the game, you've got to score better, whether it's you're doing a presentation, whether you are developing a program, whether you're being a teacher, whatever it is you're doing, you've got to do that better and be extremely impressive if you're going to be considered for, for whatever it is you're competing for. You know, we talked earlier and, about weathering. I mean, what, what kind of weathering effect is there when someone tells you you have to work twice as hard to do just as well as those around you? Well, I, I think that is, you know, when I heard that word being mentioned, I think that is probably a good description of what has happened to a lot of our black men. Yeah. I think that that explains why a lot of them have chosen, um, as Tony said, you know, we can't pay the mortgage. Um, we can't raise our children. Um, we, we cannot succeed at being fathers and being husbands, not because we don't want to, but we can't. Um, because society is not going to allow us the types of jobs or to get in the positions that we need to be in for that to happen. And quite honestly, I, I will say, you know, for a strong black woman, uh, there we probably have not been as supportive in understanding that that's how our black men feel. And so not only are they having to put up with the pressure of, you know, society, they're having to put it put up with it when they come home as well. And I think that that has been very much a burden for them, and they have chosen the way out. Now, is that is that an excuse? Maybe, maybe not, um, but it is what it is. Um, so to my point of 
having to have those discussions because we know that there's really not another way. If you're going to make it, you have to always recognize that. So when I look at my own, you know, life, especially from, you know, high school and a, a professional standpoint, you know, I recognize that my parents taught me that at the end of the day, you're still black. When you woke up this morning and you looked in the mirror, you were still black. And oh, by the way, you're still female as well. So you've got to go out there and you have got to be great at what you're doing. And so I did that and accepted the fact that that's the way it was. So I, you know, yes, you may take a minute here or there and think this is not fair. But my parents would say to me, life is not fair. The world is not fair. And it's never going to be fair to you because you're a black person. So you deal with that. You learn what you have to do to adapt. You learn what you have to do to blend in, which, quite honestly, I, I would have to say, has, you know, have all been things that have been, you know, really good for me um, because, those are skills that you need to know because you deal with all different kinds of people in all different kinds of settings. And so it really helps you um, learn how to operate and how to navigate and how to accomplish the things that you know you have to accomplish in life or that you want to accomplish in life. So, Annie, quick question. So you mentioned you're older than the previous two guests. In your span of life, um, I, I guess I want to, uh, we got to wrap things up here in a second. Do you feel like there has been progression? First question. Second half of the question. What, what do you see that could, how can we take this momentum? What changes do you think could be made now to help, if you've seen progression, to further progression? In how, essentially, the, the experience of black males and females in our society has been. So I, I do feel like there has been progression, obviously. Um, we can see that every day. Um, but clearly there has been regression as well. Um, I hear mothers now who talk about the conversation and fathers as well, the conversations that they're having with their children, specifically with their black sons. Um, and, you know, there are even um, people who want to have um, programs in the school where they're teaching, you know, black kids specifically how you need to act when you're being stopped by the police or when you're being talked to from a person of, you know, of authority and so forth and so on. So, I, honestly, those are conversations that we had um, when I was a child, but I never thought that I could possibly be healed if I operated outside of those guidelines that my parents told me about. Mm -hmm. So, I think to a great degree, we have lost some of the ground. To answer your question quickly about moving forward, there's just so many things that we need to move forward, but it has to be intentional. I mean, we can't just have training programs because that's not good enough. That's like studying to take a test, pass the test, and then forget what it is you learned because your goal was to pass the test. These have to be very intentional discussions that we are having and we have to see that behavior changes. And we have to understand that people are people. We have to start with respecting one another simply because we're people. And it has to start with everybody everywhere. And if it's not happening and it's in your presence, then you need to be the first person to say that, that it's not happening and you're not tolerating it. So then I'm hearing, from you, I'm hearing from you more, essentially more conversations. Continue to have conversations and if you see something say something and try to continue educating the person next to you and the next person and so on is that what i'm hearing 
I, I am. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And okay. I, I know we're getting a few that we need to wrap up here. So. No, no, we're, no, no, no. We're, we're good okay. on time. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Um, Andy, I wanted to ask you this. You, you and I live in the same community. Uh, Reed teaches at Hoover High School. I think, obviously, there are issues in Hoover, and people bring those issues to me almost on a daily basis, although I love my community very much, and um, I, I understand what those issues are. I also, though, when thinking about school systems – do think, having been someone who went through the Hoover School System and now uh, watching Reed as a teacher, know that it is somewhat of a diverse, somewhat, I, I say that lightly, somewhat of a diverse uh, school system. Kathy Fournier asked, do you think there is a community in Birmingham, in the Birmingham metro area, that is truly uh, a mix of colors and truly diverse? Wow. Hmm. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's Hoover. I'll be perfectly honest with you about that. Um, living in Hoover is absolutely wonderful, um, but clearly um, it's not, you know, there's work, much, much work to be done there. Um, if you look at you know, who represents, who makes the decisions um, in the city of Hoover. It does not reflect um, the, the people who live there uh, for whatever reason. When you look at what goes on in the school system um, in the city of Hoover, and Hoover has great school systems, without a doubt, um, but there are so too many incidents that occur where, you know, black people have been treated a certain way. Um, so to answer your question, and, you know, I would say at this point, and this is, this is a discussion um, that maybe I heard on one of your other uh, podcasts, I mean, probably downtown Birmingham, in the city of Birmingham, but specifically downtown, now has become that very diverse, um, environment, and I think that is because we are seeing a change and a shift of you know more and more white people are moving into downtown. Many, many young people are moving into downtown of all races, and I think those people come from a generation where it doesn't matter what color you are. And so, even though they probably weren't taught in their homes, you know what happened in. American history, which happened to be black history, and why pe black people were treated a certain way. Um, but they grew up understanding that, you know, it didn't matter what color people are. That's what, you know, our children, you know, Mark had the young man on talking earlier who was friends with, with his son. Children of those age, they don't really care necessarily what the colors are. Um, and so I think since we're having that diverse um, group of people who are living downtown now, that's probably the area that has, you know, the most balance. Annie, I'm glad to hear you talk about the youth because when, earlier when you said it needs to come from the top, I, I, I get that comment. But one of my thoughts was I feel like a lot of the progress is going to be made from the younger generation upward. In other words, they're going to teach. I feel like they're teaching. They've taught me a lot. I can tell you that much. Um, and so I think the voices of that generation are what also we're hearing uh, now uh, in in just outrage over what has what happened in Minneapolis. So I think I think it can come from top and bottom and sides, and it needs to come from everywhere. And I think that's to me what's happening right now is I feel like it's coming from everywhere, and I'm afraid it's going to just kind of you know, fade away if we don't continue the momentum and 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 educate as many people and have as many conversations as we can while people are, are focused on it. I don't I don't disagree with you, Mark. I have for many, many years now said the millennial generation and every kid after that is going to change the world. And I think that is a great thing. Um, but it's going to take a while for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, at this very point where we are all 
you know, we are all looking and seeing what is happening and knowing that there needs to be change. And we're getting emails from, you know, every major corporation out there saying, okay, Black Lives Matter to us. That's wonderful. We appreciate that. But teach that to your, your corporate leaders. Make sure that you have corporate leaders that represent America as a whole, all races. Make sure that your corporate leaders are ensuring that the people in their corporation have every opportunity to do as well as any white person does. So I'm saying, yes, young people will change the world, but if we want the world to be changed now or five years from now and we want it to be changed at a pace that we all get to see and that we all get to feel really good about, that it's going to have to happen for more than just young people. Yeah. Uh, real quick, is there any, I know you're pretty involved in the uh, local uh, corporate goings-on. Is there any organization, uh, whether it be public or private, that you think people could kind of get behind that's that's working on some of these issues? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I would have to say at this point, there are probably a lot of organizations that I don't know about, and for young people, there are definitely um, plenty of organizations but I would say, you know, let's go back to the basics. You know, let's understand, you know, what the NAACP is all about. Let's try to shake hands with the people who have been fighting this good fight for longer than any of us have been alive, probably. Um, let's, you know, go back to some of those organizations who know what the history is and, you know, look at it from who can we partner with that, you know, it's going to be very intentional and can give you all of the background, as well as, you know, look at some of the organizations that, you know, the millennials are in, and I can't tell you what those are because I'm not of that, yeah, yeah. you know, generation. Um, yeah. So, you know, there are many ways to tackle this problem, right. but I believe that if we don't do something very intentional, this momentum that we have going right now, it could be like anything else, and it'll be over That's right. in a matter of months. Yeah, I agree. And we would have gone through all of this for nothing. Annie, thank you so much. This is uh, this has been very important as our our listeners are commenting and saying there on Facebook. Uh, we, we can't just think, we can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks, Annie. Mm, bye bye. So yeah, Dr. Westfall as well. Thanks for putting all this together. Sure. We're going to continue this conversation. Uh, we have other Thanks folks. for giving us the platform. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's important to us and important to our listeners as well. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers. 